2018, Home Secretary Sajid Javid announced the Home Office review into grooming gangs. It was a big moment. A British Muslim minister was brave enough to look at whether Pakistani men really were overrepresented as abusers. But in the aftermath of the Windrush scandal, the department was hypersensitive about race and did its best to block the report's publication. It took 130,000 signing a petition for it to be released. But the report was a whitewash. It limply concluded that data collection on ethnicity was so poor that it was impossible to know the truth. Rather than improve data collection, it said that the majority of abusers were white. However, the report it based that on found that 30% of abusers were white and 28% were Asian, despite whites making up 85% of the population and Asians just 8%. Clearly, Asians were vastly overrepresented in this kind of child abuse, being over three times more likely to be an abuser. You're watching Deprogrammed. My name is Harrison Pitt, I'm a writer for the European Conservative, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Evan Riggs, who is a freelance journalist, and our special guest Charlie Peters, who is a presenter at GB News. And recently, Charlie, you've produced this documentary for GB News on what's, what's um, uh, in you know, common parlance referred to as the, the grooming gangs phenomenon, but really we're talking about the sort of the systematic rape, exploitation and brutalization of uh, of children at the hands of, sort of predominantly Pakistani, Pakistani gangs. What's been the reaction to that uh, documentary in, in, in the echelons of power? Um, well, it's changed the law, first and foremost. Okay. The most important thing to note is that it, it worked. The, uh, it, we had two intentions when we made the film. It's just me and one producer, uh, of course, with the support of GB News and, and the various assistants it has provided. The mission was to restart a national conversation we never had when this problem started or it was noticed by the mainstream just over a decade ago. Um, the reporter at the Times, Andrew Norfolk, he kind of exposed the scandal originally in Rotherham. And then news has filtered through from other towns and other court records across the country to point to this being a national crisis. But as that discussion started, it was mealy-mouthed, it was minute, and it was heavily censored. And so I wanted to restart that. And I also wanted to investigate whether it was still going on today. Um, we found that it was, and we also hoped to, in part of restarting that conversation, commit some change and gave a series of recommendations, many of which the government picked up on in their change in the law earlier this month. And what were those, um, what were those policies in particular? Well, we, we said that the government needed to take a look at ethnicity data and hold the police and the government itself to account on recording ethnicity data. There has been a nervousness in discussing that issue within these abuse gangs. Uh, we also wanted stronger prison sentences for the grooming gang abusers, so facilitators of this sort of abuse should be punished further. All too often in the stories that we looked at, men were committing the most obscene acts and facilitating the abuse of others and were released from prison after only a few years, often spending some time in open prisons, often returning to the same communities that their victims lived in. So that was a, the second big piece uh, that we wanted. Um, and then we also wanted a, a national crime agency supported and led task force. So the police could investigate areas where they believed or had credible reason that these abuse gangs were still operating. There are several such towns where insufficient investigation has taken place. And we know from Rotherham, the National Crime Agency has secured 
dozens of more prosecutions and is still working to secure justice for more survivors. We saw it as sort of, um, in our analysis, the gold standard organisation for achieving justice within the grooming gang scandal. All too often, local government and local police forces were mired in political correctness and a failure to adequately respond to these issues. But a national, kind of separate and, I think, more expert force mm. could deliver the justice tailored to this particular mm. problem. That's yeah. right. So that's what we've got. So maybe it's just because I'm a stranger in a strange land here, mm. but why has this taken so long? Like, what political correctness aside, where is this nervousness coming from? Because it seems to me that in any sort of civilized society, mm. the sort of mass industrial rape of young girls and, and women mm -hmm. should be taken with the utmost seriousness. Yeah. And it, it seems from watching your documentary that the only thing that's been taken seriously is the desire to hide all of this and push it under the rug. I think the overarching crisis we've had with this problem has been the prioritization of community cohesion over the safety and security of young girls. That is the, that is the prioritization of defending multiculturalism as a whole and the missions of liberalism mm. and the sustenance of its justification in policy and in practice over young women and girls who are generally considered to be expendable mm. by those people. I mean, um, this is a multifaceted issue. It's not just about nervousness about ethnicity. It's also about uh, not caring about girls who are seen not really as working class, but sort of underclass. Mm -hmm. And many people in the media, and I believe in politics as well, and local authorities, were happy for those girls to be characterized in that way, that they were out of control, wild girls getting themselves into trouble. But actually, the model of grooming is such that these girls are dragged away, isolated, toxically abused, twisted, and in many cases, tortured as they go through um, their horrifying ordeals. So there's, there's two kind of, those are the two big reasons why I think that has happened. Um, also, what has generated this nervousness and this hostility towards the truth and a prevention of investigation has been that it's been going on for so many decades mm. And the only people who were willing to speak about it in the beginning were those typically considered far right, um, often just normal people with normal concerns. Obviously, sure. it's, a, it's a tag that's used very, very casually. Um, when patriotic and socially conservative and decent and upstanding left wing people made comments or complaints about this scandal. They were, up they were yeah. well, they were just bullied and harassed mm. and, and destroyed. Anne Cryer, the Labour MP, mm. in 2003 first made um, public concerns about the first, I can tell, left-wing figure to kind of stand up against this issue. And she was just ignored. In fact, yeah. um, the journalist who eventually exposed the scandal, Andrew Norfolk, wrote one mm. story at the time in 03, where he said that he felt that this was a sort of a far-right fantasy. He himself mm. admitted mm. that, but a sense of kind of liberal guilt kicked in over the years and he revisited the issue and so we can credit Anna Cryer a lot with with actually starting mm. that investigation. Jack Straw he also made complaints he was pilloried and and very famously Sarah Champion of course writing mm. in 2018 for The Sun about this scandal um, was subject to the most obscene bullying and obviously mm. removed from frontline politics of the Labour Party and hasn't really come back since. So are you optimistic then that these political changes that you've been able to kind of push through will be upheld if and when Labour gets into power? Um, the more concerning thing about the political changes that have happened, first, first I'd say they're very, it's very brave 
of the Prime Minister and the government yeah. and, and Swede Brabant to take this on um, because it has become such a difficult issue for others to do. I mean, it, it sounds almost ludicrous to say that it's brave to support- <laughs> Stand up against stand rape. Stand up against yeah. rape gangs, but because there is such a huge vilification yeah. of anyone who does do it, it's, I'm enormously grateful that they have mm. done it. And, and we should all be, I think. Um, it's no small thing to be faced with kind of an onslaught of abuse mm. and just to say, you know, this is worth doing. Um, what concerns me the most about the security and long-standing support of those policies was how frit their colleagues were in defending them. Mm. Suella Braverman took the hardest line any politician has when she announced on the Sunday before the policies were put to the nation, describing in no uncertain terms that these gangs are predominantly British Pakistani, that there has been a kind of a cultural and ethnic cause to this abuse, that white girls were targeted for their race, and that there was a clannishness that supported and led towards that kind of abuse. How, how did that clannishness manifest itself? So give, give us some examples of, 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 of why that such makes this problem so intractable. Uh, so um, migration to Britain has happened in waves, uh, in, in, many, in many ways, since the last five decades or so, but more intensely mm. uh, from uh, kind of South Asia and since uh, kind of the Windrush scandal as well, sorry, Windrush generation. The Windrush generation, of mm. course. Um, what we have struggled with in particular with assimilating migrants from northern Pakistan and the Mirpuri region in particular mm -hmm. is that chain migration happens within families and then the cultural attitudes of people from that region are such that cousin marriage is very mm -hmm. common mm -hmm. and this generates socio-biological kinship whereby you create clans through, through consanguinity. Yeah. If you marry your family you don't assimilates with the rest of the community, it creates ghettoization. Mm. And this mixed in with a deeply patriarchal culture, which in many mm. ways is extremely backward, gives girls and women very little power, and it gives men enormous opportunity mm. to act kind of without repercussion. And so this sort of, sort of, in, this sort of extreme, these extreme levels of in-group solidarity mm -hmm. and sort of out-group hostility and out-group right. suspicion it, it means that sort of cousins aren't willing to inform on one another to, to police, so the police is police, um, sort of, you know, uh, local police force, even if they are trying, mm -hmm. obviously, as you say, they're often they're very neglectful, mm -hmm. but even if they are trying to, to, to solve this problem, it's very difficult to infiltrate into that sort of, those sort of cousinage networks. Precisely, yeah. uh, spot on. And, and at the same time, you have to remember that the, the in-group solidarity, as it were, of the local uh, long-standing population is declining at the same time. In many of these towns, um, they are kind of post-industrial Victorian mm. industrial towns, very atomised, very atomized yeah. and blighted by uh, sweeping changes in society which mm. have made them poorer, less united. Um, changes in, in cultural attitudes have seen mm. a rise. I mean, a lot of disputes happening in the 90s and the early noughties mm. was during a period of like uh, a, a, a sudden change in the licentiousness mm. of mm. our culture. Sure. Um, going out mm. and, and having a, a kind of a very liberal sex life was That's considered yeah. normal. So this mm. change happening in tandem, this very, very conservative mm. and abusive culture mixing it with uh, a bizarre, I mean, I grew up in the noughties, you saw it, I mean, you might have as well, right? You would yeah. have seen how um, this bizarre mixture of, of conservative judgment from tabloid press mixed mm. in with the promotion of licentiousness mm. through popular media sure. would have been very, very confusing to 
uh, lots of young women and young girls growing yes. up at the time. I think it's, uh, you, you mentioned earlier how um, one of the reasons why this was swept under the rug mm. by, by left-wing authorities in particular is because it sort of flew in the face of their own sort of ideological pieties, their sort of d delusions. But I think it does also, and, and if we're speaking about the left in that case, but I think it also, and, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but um, I think it also undermines the, the sort of the, even the sort of the classical liberal illusion that it's possible for us simply to value free value freedom mm -hmm. in politics yeah. and expect that you know you can have sort of you know, re relentless waves of sort of unwanted unwanted migration into mm -hmm. these communities and expect that it's not going to lead to a sort of disintegration of social bonds. It's not going to create problems for social cohesion. So it, and obviously that sort of economic liberalism has seized the upper echelons of the Conservative Party in, uh, ever since that Joe really. So it flies it flies in the face of that sort of liberal piety, but it also flies in. Uh, in the face of, of, of the much more sort of um, uh, much more ideological left-wing party that not, not only is diversity not a problem it's an active strength mm. and that I mean I mean uh, you wouldn't even we wouldn't even need to have scandals like this to underline how wrong that is I mean wait, wait, any place in the world where you look where there are sort of extreme levels of diversity I think the three most and there obviously there are all sorts of different fault lines along which diversity can be measured. You get tribal diversity, you get ethnic diversity, you get racial diversity, you get um, religious diversity. All of the places where diversity is at its highest proportion. Mm. I think the three most diverse populations of the world, with populations of, o of over a million, mm -hmm. are Liberia, the Congo, and Papua New Guinea. Not exactly mm. success stories. <laughs> and the three most homogenous societies in the world are Japan, Denmark, and South Korea. Mm. So the, the, the gamble of the diversity is our strength crowd is that the more we become uh, compositionally like Liberia, like Congo, like the Congo, sure. like Papua New Guinea, the more we can retain our sort of the first world, sorry, the more we can retain the first world standards of countries like South Korea, Japan, and Denmark. And, and, it's, and it's sheer delusion. And so it's no wonder that when you get a sort of a story like this, which just completely blows that um, illusion to shreds, they don't want anything to do with it. Sure. I mean, you can take, I think Singapore is the only example of a kind of modern first world multi-ethnic society that's kind of come up, you know, in Lee Kuan Yew's book, From Third World to First, you know, it's mm. multiculturalism is built into the Singaporean constitution, but that was done with laws that would probably not fly here in Westminster. I, I, was, I was just about to, sorry, yeah. sorry, continue, continue. No, no, and I would just say like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm even kind of a good example of this because assimilation will only get you so far. I mean, I'm um, from a Commonwealth country, I'm Canadian, I speak English, I've moved here, I love it here, but I'm not British, mm. clearly. We have the same you, you, nursery rhymes as us. Yeah, exactly. The same I'm, monarchs as us. I'm about as we're, close we're, as you can get, yeah. but I'm still not British. Mm. And so the idea that, you know, as assimilated as I might become, it'll never be 100%. Mm, sure. And the idea that somebody can come here, you know, from a country like Liberia, mm. they might be well accepted, they might be, you know, they can learn to speak English and they might be economically productive, mm. but they'll never become English. You know, maybe their children's children can kind of mm. get there, but this idea that everybody will just come here and sort of immediately meld into a melting pot, mm. if it's not going to work for Canadians and Australians, where will it? I think the dominant culture will always sustain, but I, I think that all, all good countries need a degree of migration to stay dynamic and, and also mm. sure. to, and to, and to, and, and to generally enhance their culture. It's, mm. not, or it's not necessarily the case that just uh, that migration dilutes and, and denigrates it, it can enhance too. Mm. The problem, especially in many of these towns, um, covered in the film mm -hmm. and in the wider investigation, that it was too much, too soon, too fast, and unwanted, and not and, not, not voted and for. and nobody asked for it, yeah. and I mean, nobody it asked for, it. for the exact it, opposite. It, it, thing. I mean, it, it, it is it is a usurpation of the government's powers mm. to because a lot of these people sort of in five once people become here as immigrants in five years' time they will become 
voters, they'll be on the voter rolls. It, it, it is sheer arrogance on the part of our elites to import effectively a new electorate without the consent of the existing one. And that's something which has been happening consistently for decades now. And obviously it manifests itself most most, uh, you know, most aggressively, most violently in the sort of problems that you're talking about. Sorry, do you want to say yeah, something? Yeah, I, I just think you know, on, on the politics of dealing with this issue, um, there, there was one man in particular during the investigation that we, we covered that sort of encapsulated the crisis as a whole, for me at mm. least. His name's Maru Fassane. Now he was the community cohesion minister mm. for Rotherham Council until 2015 when he was forced to resign after Baroness Casey wrote a report, an inspection of Rotherham Council, which found that it was in denial and she mm. held the leadership mm. accountable for all that. She said the majority of councillors did not accept the J report published a year earlier, which found that 1,400 girls had been abused from 97 to 2013. How many, sorry? 1,400. 1400. That number has since been revised up to 1,510 by the National Crime Agency. This is in Rotherham. That's in Rotherham alone. Now, um, Rotherham has a relatively small population of British Pakistanis, uh, less than 5% of the town, and it's a town of about 140,000. But they constituted the vast majority of grooming gang mm. suspects. They were also aided um, by some white women as well who acted as facilitators. Some of them actually converts to Islam. One woman in particular, Shafina Ali, who sadly died in 2009, so escaped the justice that she very much deserved, um, facilitated a fake taxi hotline for taking girls to school and worked Jeez. with some abusers. Uh, and I, I've, I've met survivors of her crimes. Now, Mari Fussain, after resigning in 2015 in disgrace, we found through the GB, the GB News investigation that he had since managed to sneak back into the public sector after rebranding himself as an anti-Islamophobia activist. So it, the Casey report found that it alleged that Mari Fussain had uh, delivered a false accusation of racism against a fellow Labour Party member when that Labour Party member said there is a particular <coughs> problem with Pakistani taxi drivers in this town yeah. abusing white girls, which was obviously true. Mm -hmm. and as we know, it's been very much proven. Mr Hussain's reaction to that comment, it is said in the case report, was this is racist and to complain about it. So he, he was very much in his role prioritising community cohesion over the safety and the support that young girls in the town needed. He then, after his resignation, went through a period of rebranding as an anti-Islamophobia activist, as a sort of community cohesion activist. And we found at the beginning of the year that he was now working as a manager in the NHL, in the NHS Health Education England body yeah. as a national diversity, inclusion and participation <laughs> manager. Oh, these people get paid quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. He, I think he was on £49,000 when I, when I asked them partly for his salary <laughs> and they begrudgingly told me. So um, he had used the kind of the language, the, the language of the trappings and the mm. politics of diversity, firstly to help the cover up of abuse and then to advance his own career in the wake of the disaster he left mm. behind. As far as I'm concerned, people who were involved in that should, should not face freedom again, no, let, alone, let alone rebrand themselves as public servants. It's, mm. uh, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a disgrace that, that, that diversity hasn't been more of a casualty of this scandal. Mm. And instead, it, I mean, it still sounds like it's, it's still a lucrative selling point mm. for it's, many people. In, ma in many ways, the diversity industry has benefited from the national grooming gang scandal. Why do, why do you say that? Because it has shown to us, in no uncertain terms, the enormous power of lying to people about the truth about these crimes. And it has shown to 
grifters and activists and lawyers and media professionals and politicians that if they repeat a lie enough about this scandal, not only can they get away with it, but they can be promoted for it. It has shown mm. in many ways, very disturbingly, the in, in many that the invincibility that the diversity industry and the diversity culture enjoys within our politics. The reaction to the film mm. um, was very positive from people who had not heard about the issue before or many who had and were keen to see some in more detail. support. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but a lot of people ignored it because it's not in keeping with the national myth making we've had around this crisis. Mm -hmm. in, in 2020, the Home Office were forced to release a report which said that the majority of grooming gang abusers are white. That's actually not what the report said. It, it found that so many constabularies didn't have data. Which so, is what, hence the, the law changed. And so now. it was impossible yeah. to know the truth. And, yeah. and it said that 30% of white men were abusers uh, and 28% were Asian. That's unlikely to represent the truth because of the lack of data. But even then, that shows a huge overrepresentation yeah, of yeah. Asians and an underrepresentation of white men. But still, the blob and the diversity industry mm -hmm. managed to spin that report as saying, aha, grooming gangs are a white problem, even though we had 19 trials in West Yorkshire of only Pakistani men, even though we had Rotherham, Rochdale, Telford, even though we had up to 50 different towns and cities where these gangs had gone on and where mm -hmm. uh, in general Asian, but in particular Pakistani names were most mm -hmm. common. More recently, studies have been done analyzing prosecution data, which has found that Pakistanis dominate this conversation, dominate this data. So even if the police aren't recording the ethnicity of the abusers, the courts are recording their names and using some academic analysis there, we can show that the yeah. blob is lying, but the blob doesn't care. Okay. The blob hears it and goes, no, no, that's racist. Sayyid Avasi will say, you're racist. The Guardian will say, you're racist. Elements of the government will tell you you're racist. And Suella Bravman, I think, was quite surprised by the reaction she got. I think she underestimated the extent to which people cannot let this truth be known. Hmm. Now, forgive my ignorance here, but obviously Europe saw like a mass migration wave in 2015, right? Mm -hmm. And there were problems that came from that. Like in Germany, you know, they had- Dortmund and Cologne. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. But there seems to me to be like a, a systematic element in the UK that isn't present in other countries that have had the same problem. It's like in your documentary, you talk about a, a list of girls' names mm -hmm. that was pinned to a door. Mm. And, and it's rife through the police. It's you know people taking advantage of black cabs and using a, you know, a fake call-in service. Why do you think there's this element of, I don't know, like- Collaboration. Collaboration and like, mm. for lack of a better word, like high intelligence in planning it mm. that's happening in the UK that doesn't seem to be happening in other countries. Other countries, there's there's problems, it's but there's not. Yeah, it's it's just attacks. Like yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd say that um, Syria is not the same as the Mirpuri region of Pakistan or the Kashmir region of Pakistan. The different people, different cultures, different worlds, and so uh, it's not the same source, as it were, of the issue that we have predominantly in England and Wales, and also in Glasgow. Actually, there was one grooming gang scandal in Glasgow. Um, so you're, you're dealing with different people. Uh, but also I think England has a particular nervousness about discussions of immigration mm. and discussions of, uh, and people are particularly nervous about being seen as racist, right? The fear of being seen as racist mm. was repeated regularly in all of the reports. The Telford report last year mentioned that racial nervousness led to 
civil servants in the local government like shutting down discussions of it, even like well-meaning people, mm -hmm. normal people, sure. so wrapped up in this culture of political correctness that they would actively commit to to policy decisions that harmed girls and protected abusers. Yeah. So I, th I, th I think our culture is you know, you know, very upsetting, particularly warped in this way. Whereas um, kind of friendly and similar countries that um, aren't as bad on that front and also mm. haven't had the same kind of migration. I think I, I think that's the second bit is very important. I just I don't just want to keep bashing diversity. But mm. I mean, it, get, it gets a lot of celebration. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, a, there's a corrective element, I suppose, to it. But um, I, I mean, diversity also. I mean. At, at, at extremely high levels, like mass immigration, it has a sort of paralyzing effect on freedom of speech, particularly for politicians who now have to court the votes of these new arrivals, particularly if, they, li particularly if they live in constituencies where they predominate. So for example, in the 1870s, th you, there were examples of Gladstone making speeches against uh, the, the, the Turkish Empire, which would have him thrown out of every single mainstream political party today. The only party that would accept him today would be either sort of reclaim or reform, maybe the SDP, even though he, could have, <laughs> even though he would have disagreed with them on free trade. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, so, some of the stuff fulminating against sort of Turkish atrocities mm. in, in Bulgaria, being very disparaging about the Muslim faith and the way in which that motivates those sorts of atrocities. But if he'd had a, 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 a large sort of Turkish diaspora in his Greenwich constituency, would Gladstone have been anywhere near as, as fearsome in, in, in going against that? Mm. And, and as such today, I mean, the, the, the same problem uh, persists. Um, you, if you've got these sort of diasporas living in communities, mm -hmm. you're going to be, you're going to have to tread incredibly carefully. So diversity has in a, a sort of um, a paralysing effect on free speech and our, our ability to get to the heart of issues as well. I think you're right, uh, but I mean, unfortunately, we don't have to look as far back as the 1870s <laughs> to, to prove it today. I mean, just I, a very good example. Yeah, well, it is. <laughs> we, we have to only look back three weeks ago when Tracy Brabin was the the mayor for West Yorkshire, yeah. was on the Sunday Politics Show on the BBC. I forget what it's called now, Laura Koonsberg was hosting. And the night before, uh, Swedish Bradman had written her op-ed, published at 10.30 p.m., saying that the government will act to clamp down on grooming gangs. So announcing the first communications line on the new policy. Tracy Bradman, I think, was unprepared for this, but her reaction to how to describe um, her response to Braverman's comments was very telling. Mm -hmm. Her first reaction was to describe it as dog whistle politics. So not to actually grapple with the validity of the claim, but to say on national television, this is a dog whistle, the truth is a dog whistle. But we also have to remember that Brabant's comments come within two years of the scandal in Batley, where a teacher is still in hiding after the issue of displaying a cartoon of Muhammad or a, a, a photo of Muhammad. For, for, for pedagogical purposes. Indeed, yeah. for the purpose of teaching, yeah. right? That was, uh, this man is still in hiding, I believe, yeah. and, yeah, and uh, probably under lock and key with MI5 right now, God bless him. <laughs> and, um, and, and mere weeks before this announcement in March, uh, you'll remember that there was an incident in Wakefield mm. where an autistic boy dropped a oh, Quran yeah. at school oh my gosh, yes, and yeah. he was forced to apologise. His mother was forced, dragged in front of, sort of a... Terrified. Sort of a Sharia come Maoist struggle session. Well, there we go. We, yeah. saw, we yeah. saw that there was, in many cases, the political and social calamities that contributed to the grooming gang scandal mm. uh, were there before us. A police officer, in, like, an inspector in West Yorkshire Police sat there in front of this crowd saying, I urge calm from the local community, the local Muslim community with regards to this poor autistic sure, boy sure. and his mother who was begging for forgiveness from these people, embarrassing, awful people. I would say that West Yorkshire police, a police force that had Maru Hussain, the aforementioned Islamophobia activist, 
very helpfully gave him a talk in 2019 and we uncovered at GB News. Mm -hmm. So um, a man who covered up grooming gangs was now um, speaking to the police about uh, diversity. So Tracy Bravin, in her own patch, has got to balance mm. these competing and totally alien forces. Mm. And so she cannot, mm. she's politically restricted mm. from being honest, I think, about this problem. Uh, you know, she'll, she'll allow a teacher to go in hide, into hiding. She'll allow an, an autistic boy to be bullied by a fanatic religious mob. And she will fail to stand up for girls being abused by the most obscene, torturous rape gangs. The question has to be asked, actually, what will she not cover up? <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Yes. Well, okay, so if these, if we can't count on the politicians, what advice would you give for people kind of back at home? who are trying to deal with this in their personal lives, who might be yeah. worried about their their daughters or their nieces mm. or just girls in their community? Mm. Well, there are enormous resources available from many very good organizations with regards to how to respond to child sexual exploitation. I always refer people to the NSPCC, and I've been slightly nervous about doing that in the last month because they actually said that Braverman's comments risk singling out a group. But of course, the whole, problem, the, the whole problem we've had is that people have not been singling out this group. God, forbid, God yeah. forbid that we get to the heart of the problem. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So that, that was really quite distressing. Um, but their overall guidance on how to respond to CSE is very important. I'd also recommend people reach out to the Maggie Oliver Foundation. Maggie Oliver, uh, the, the Rochdale whistleblower who exposed mm. the scandal there. We still don't know the extent of it. A report is currently being written by the local authority. She, her foundation is uh, remarkable, supports thousands of survivors every year. And supports active live cases where girls still feel as though they are being fobbed off by the police. And I've, I've seen some of those case notes and they are severe. They are doing very good work. And um, I think if people watch the film, as I'm sure many of your viewers already have, um, because your viewers are excellent people, but they will, they will, they will notice many other um, commentators and activists and whistleblowers there who, who, who need support. And a lot of the conversation about this has to do with, you know, kind of the Westminster class and mm. the, the political response and repercussions to this but what has been the response that you've gotten from these members of, of, of the working class or even kind of below that the underclass that you've been you've been talking with I mean you must be kind of their hero now you're the first person to kind of bring this up in like a decade no, I, I wouldn't say that I mean I, I think um, like any, any like sense of courage or, or like um, personal pride I feel like this work is like is, is minute in comparison to what you hear when you when you meet survivors mm. and what you, when you when you speak to victims of this abuse who who are putting their lives at risk to step forward and discuss it so if i i feel i'm a very grateful vessel for their ideas and for their stories sure sure and i am i people are more grateful for them yeah mm. than they are i think for any outlet that supports them because they are the people who have changed the national conversation um journalists can only help sell their stories to sure. the public but it, I mean this might sound weird to say but uh, you know editing the voice of a survivor editing their speech and their, their testimony to me is much much easier than editing um, speaking to a, a commentator or a politician because mm -hmm. there is no waffle mm. there is no flapping around there is just their experiences and the raw humanity of it they are the people who compel people to interaction I understand that you actually interviewed Suella Bravman mm. recently. Were you Im were you impressed? There was one line in particular that stood out, which w was stark. She, she said, "She said the answer to my second question." She said, "The truth is not racist." I've never heard a minister or a politician, let alone the Home Secretary, stand up for the government's own policy investigating 
these kind of gangs before. So I was impressed by that, but the proof is really in the pudding. Um, if this task force is given the sufficient support it needs, then I will be impressed. If the more data on ethnicity is recorded, then I will be impressed. If abusers are deported, I'll be very impressed. Yes, I was about to yeah. ask that. Yeah. Yes. But also, and, if, and also, if they go to prison, there, are, there was a case this morning I, I read about, um, not with the, in, to deal with the grooming gang scandal, but a man arrested for a violent offence, not sent to prison because the prisons are full. This is a problem we've had for many years. Yeah. Our prison estate is absolutely heaving, and I, I think that we run a risk now of extremists and abusers escaping punishment due to that issue. So there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. Mm. Now, okay, so you, you hit the hit the note there four times. If hmm. if these things don't happen, what do you expect that the response will be, both from the communities that it's happening in hmm. and from sort of the political elements in Westminster that are trying to push hmm. through these changes? Well, I think um, they are cautiously optimistic is the language I heard, sure. essentially, when I met with many of the survivors and campaigners I've worked with um, for the last 18 months. Cautiously optimistic. So I don't know what their reaction would be, and I, I wouldn't want to... Um, preempt that um, but we will be there to hold the government to account and to give those voices a voice when and if the government lets them down. Hmm. Well thank you very much Charlie Peters for coming in and telling us about this and we look forward to any future work you might have in the pipeline. Evan thanks as ever. You've been watching Deprogrammed. We'll see you on the next one. Hello if you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever and we have great plans ahead for the future but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member you'll receive a range of benefits including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events including here at our studios, free copies of our books and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.